0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Mary Soon Lee about her book, The Sign of the Dragon, which recently won a 2021 Elgin Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Mary Soon Lee, was born and raised in London but now lives in Pittsburgh. She writes both fiction and poetry and has previously won both the Riesling Award and Elgin Award. Her two latest books are from the opposite ends of the poetry spectrum. Elemental Haiku contains haiku for each element of the periodic table and The Sign of the Dragon is an epic fantasy with Chinese elements. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I just really loved *The Sign of the Dragon*, and I'm just so excited that we got honored with an award as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I was really pleased too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I always like to kind of start off with writers' origin stories. So, I would love to know how you um, first connected to writing and starting your path as a writer and a poet.
1: Well, I it took a while, so. I began um, by thinking I was going to do a STEM-type career. I studied mathematics um, at at college, and then I did a computer science um, one-year postgraduate course, and then later I did an MSc in astronautics and space engineering. And at that point, um, I accompanied my husband to the United States, and while I was waiting to get a work permit, the Gulf War started, and the job I had been going to go to said, wait for the work permit office in Boston to reopen, because it had closed. Um, and while I was waiting, I started writing, and then I found that I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it- how it began. I didn't. I didn't write much poetry until after the birth of my second child, and at that point, it was very hard to get any free time. Um, and I discovered that it was much easier to write a poem than to write a story. I mean, much quicker. I could complete it in mere hours. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you.
0: Like, your first two books were uh, fiction books, right? Uh, Short story collections?
1: Correct, yes. Because, like, I began by writing um, short stories and the poetry came later. Yeah, so
0: you... I mean, you mentioned that writing poetry was easier in terms of, like, time constraints, but, like, Mm -hmm. what was your experience of, like, transitioning from fiction to poetry in terms of figuring out craft?
1: Well, (laughs) I... I had read quite a lot of poetry um, ever since I was a child, but I haven't been taught either uh, fiction writing, prose writing, or um, poetry writing since um, partway through high school. The last two years of high school, I only did math and science, which is a very quintessentially British thing that you specialize early so, um, I was in a similar place to when I began writing fiction, in that um i'd I'd read a lot of fiction <laughs> I was time you know, to just try writing it <laughs> um and similarly for the poetry um I was in a writer's group that I ran, and one of the other um writers had brought in some poetry and I'm guessing his feedback was insightful. I've always considered it to have been insightful. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that was that was it. I I wouldn't I didn't attend a course on poetry. So Yeah, I mean, you said
0: you've read a lot of poets. So are there particular poets that like you turn to when you're looking for inspiration and in how to approach a piece or that sort of thing?
1: Not so much. I don't typically um read to directly and immediately get ideas they feed into a sort of longer term process. I do sometimes look at writing prompts and there's a book called The Daily Poet: The Daily Poet, and I'm trying to remember the author's names i'm I'm blanking on it. I feel like it's something like Agadon is one of their surnames uh Kelly, Kelly Russell. I maybe, yes. And maybe Martha. And then I'm again, I'm blanking. But they have a prompt for each day of the year. And I often do dip into it, not necessarily at the right date that I'm on. I, I mean, it's October and I might look at something from May. And sometimes that just sends me off in a certain direction. And other times I ignore it. Um, hmm. Yes, I I'm, I should have made a note of <laughs> <laughs> of things like that, so I could tell you who had written that book. <laughs> but that's all
0: right. It's always hard to remember when you're like on at the moment, so I totally understand. Uh, I I just looked it up. Uh, it's uh, the Daily Poet by Kelly Russell Agadon and Martha Solano. There you go. That's-, that's it. So for anybody who would like to look into it, yeah. <laughs>
1: I found it quite helpful. I, I mean, other than that, I, there are definitely poets that I think influenced me and influenced this book in particular, but um, but it was very indirect. For, <laughs> do you want an example? <laughs> when I was a child, I read a book by Elizabeth Barrett Browning called Aurora Lee, and it is a, a novel-length narrative poem. And it was the first time I had realized that you could essentially tell a novel-length story and poetry in English. I'd been exposed to the Odyssey and um <laughs> the Aeneid and so on, but um but those weren't in English. And by the time I read them in English, you know, the poetry was mostly lost in translation. And uh so this this was kind of a revelation to me to read Aurora Lee years ago. And although I didn't consciously think about it when I began writing The Sign of the Dragon. I think it was in the back of my mind, just letting me know that it's possible to write a very long <laughs> poetry project that tells a story.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's so interesting how some of those like childhood or, or years ago things that we experienced can continue to have an effect on us later mm-hmm. down the road. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So um speaking of your your most recent book the sign of the dragon it is it is really such a great epic story and i would love to um talk a bit about how this book came into being and how how you kind of got started with it
1: well i got started with it back in 2013 i had been writing mostly poetry since the birth of my second child and For some reason, which I still don't understand why, I had been writing mostly mainstream poetry. And in the summer of 2013, I decided to try writing some fantasy poetry. And most of my short stories prior to that, uh, years earlier, had been science fiction or fantasy. So I I wrote a few fantasy poems, and I found that it it was a really wonderful experience. I felt much freer, I guess, because the mainstream poems had been mostly about my life or my actual opinions or something like that. And suddenly I was able to write about almost anything. And one of the first almost anything poems I wrote was a poem about um, a young prince whose father has died and he's sent to a mountain where they're going to choose the new king. But he's the youngest prince, so he's expecting one of his brothers to be chosen And I wrote it as a standalone poem and um, F.J. Bergman at Starline very kindly published it as a standalone poem. But after I had finished it, I thought about the boy in the story and I found I wanted to write some more poems about him. So I wrote a few more poems and then I wrote a few more poems. And somewhere in there, I'm not sure whether, you know, I had written a dozen poems or two dozen poems telling his story, I realized I was going to write a whole lot of poems about him. And then over the next several years, I did. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) I completed it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So as you were kind of like one poem kind of built on on the other, did you find yourself having to like just start planning out the structure of this greater work to try to make sure that it had a sense of cohesion and where the holes might be and
1: that sort of thing? I, I made a ton of notes and they were, you know, nearly all the poems in my version of it, it tells you the month or even the day that it happened and the year that it happened and where it happened. And, you know, I kept notes on all kinds of things so I could just Keep track of it, much as you might if you are writing a novel. And it was more than two dozen poems in somewhere because I was writing poems that were fairly standalone in the beginning. And then I began telling a story and I began working out pieces of the arc of the story. And well, well, before I got to the end, I knew the basic shape of the story I mean, it's not, so it's not a romance, but if it was a romance, I knew that it was going to be, you know, the two of them would end up together. So it's not a romance, but for the kind of story it is, I knew the basic shape. And then it was a question of completing it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I wrote, after a while, I was writing pieces of the story that were at different points within the story. You know, I would write a poem from the middle and then a poem from far on in the story. The first 60 poems got published as a book, uh, a shorter book by Dark Renaissance Books in 2015, as it was titled Crowned. And um, so those were more or less frozen. I only made a few changes to those ones, but everything else I kept slotting in poems or moving poems around or adding extra, you know, uh, just fiddling with the existing poems.
0: Yeah, I mean... It's such an interesting process to me, the idea of uh, writing an epic collection in this way, because each of the poems kind of, they pretty much feel pretty complete in and of themselves. Like I could almost see them standing alone um, while being a part of the the larger story. And I'm wondering, like, did you find yourself cutting or removing poems or
1: re-adding poems? I removed a few poems. I added... A lot. I mean, as in, I kept inserting things, you know, I would, I would realize that I wanted to have another poem about a certain character. So there are poems about, you know, the king's cat and the king's cleaning woman and lots of his guards and his enemies and so on. And um, in some cases, I would realize, oh, I think I'd like another poem about the cleaning woman. And then I would think, so... What will that poem be about? You know, because she could have seen different pieces of the story, or it could be tangential to the whole main story. It isn't like a regular book in that it does show some things, such as wars, in a fair amount of detail. But even then, it doesn't necessarily show the main battles. It just has little pieces that I've, uh, I've decided I just felt like writing about.
0: <laughs> yeah, it kind of. Um... I like the way the these little side characters kind of add a richness to the world that you might not be able to get in a standard novel because like you said like they they wouldn't necessarily fit in a standard
1: narrative format. thank you i I found it it was very <laughs> it, it was suited to what was happening to me at the time because by breaking it into individual poems, I could finish a poem and then mostly not think about it while I was hanging out with my children um I mean I did think about it I in fact thought about it as I was brushing my teeth and so on I, it was it was like a but it was in the background and I was able to pay more attention to them whereas I know if I had tried to write a regular novel I would have always been you know expecting to write the next chunk but this this was the piecemeal <laughs> nature of it made it manageable for my lifestyle at that time (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how writers manage if they have young children and um or even not so young children slightly older children and maybe a real job and they're writing a novel I mean I I greatly admire all the people who've succeeded in doing that
0: (laughs) same same So another aspect of your book is because this is that epic fantasy, it feels very much has this classic kind of mythic quality to it. Like the stories of King Shao remind me of the legends of like King Arthur, where you have this noble King who is trying to do his best in the world, despite all the challenges that keep getting thrown at him, whether he likes it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would love if you kind of talked about, these kinds of heroic noble characters and how you kind of make your character in particular like more human and not just this like you know shining icon figure that uh, can, can feel flat without that sense of humanity.
1: Well my, <laughs> my family read a lot of the poems as I was writing this and they basically thought that Sal was too perfect and I, I mean I, I i on the one hand, I agreed with them, and on the other hand, I didn't want to change him and i I didn't feel he was in fact perfect. He was just always trying to do the right thing he didn't necessarily but he wasn't he wasn't necessarily immensely brave. he just when he when it came to it and he had to make a make a choice, he would do the thing that he thought was the correct thing to do. And I guess it was in some sense, (laughs) you know, a wish fulfillment that there might be a leader who was uh, tremendously ethical or something. Um, Another aspect of the book also came without design, but I think in retrospect, it was almost inevitable um, because I was just pulling things out, I guess, of my subconscious. So it, it ended up that there are a lot of Chinese influences in the book, which I think comes from my father, who was ethnically Chinese. And then there are some Celtic ones. There are That's a secondary thread. And my mother was Irish. And although I grew up in London, she kept her Irish passport all her life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she could speak Gaelic and so on. So, yeah. So <laughs> things come from somewhere, even when you don't directly try and pull on them. They just end up surfacing anyhow.
0: Yeah, it all it all just comes out of the, the mix of experiences and things we read and of our lives. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking a bit about, I love novel and poems, and I love kind of epic poetry in general. So like the classic Greek kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was curious on your thoughts on the line between prose and poetry and where narrative kind of blends with poetry. Yes. And how it blurs. Yes. And like, do you feel like that line between prose and poetry kind of shifted
1: as you were writing this book? Well, I think if there is a line, the line exists. I'm sure I, there were points where I felt I definitely crossed it and it was, um, I was writing prose poetry or prose. And I do think a lot of my poems are very close to prose. I, I mean, in this book in particular, you know, I have written, you know, a book of haiku and obviously those have a form throughout. But I think that for me, what remains poetry is something to do with condensing something large and encapsulating it in a poem. Um, I do think there are plenty of novels where the prose is very poetic. I don't write much rhymed and metered poetry, though there is a little bit even in this book. Um, I didn't when I was writing it first. I didn't think about it. In retrospect, I look back at some of the poems. <laughs> you know, even the first poem. You know, which which did well. You know, it, it won an award and so on. I I look at it and I think I must have. I must. I don't know why I made the line breaks. You know why I felt I could put the line breaks where I put them. You know, and I, I look at it with a very critical eye now. But I also know it's it's pretty much set in steel because it's been published fairly widely. <laughs> so I, I, that's done. It's done. But but you know, I there are other places. Um, as I was writing it, I realised I had without intending to started using sort of Homeric tags for some of the characters to a little extent, you know, so for instance, um, the, the first enemy that uh, King Zhao faces is, I refer to him as the red King, red haired, red handed in war. And sometimes I just use part of that. And if I were writing the book from scratch, I would have thought that out in advance and, used it more consistently and probably more <laughs> than I did. But again, you know, I, I guess I was learning as I was going what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So <laughs> so I don't know. Um, it's it's really strange looking back at my own writing. There are things about it I I can't help loving, and those things are normally to do with the characters because I'm very attached to the characters. But when I look at the craft aspect of it, I tend to see the things that I wish were <laughs> more like, <laughs> I don't know, more like the poets that I've admired or more like the poets that I'm not like. So for instance, uh, you know, when I a poet that I think I'm not like, but whose poetry I like is Dylan Thomas, because they're the sound and the rhythm and so on. It's so perfect. And I, you know, I can sort of, wish that my poetry were like that and i can to some extent move it a little closer to it but i can't be dylan thomas
0: <laughs> right we can only be uh the writers that we are mm. yes um so that it kind of makes me think of like uh do you believe it's uh true based on your experience with say the first poem that uh a piece it can only be um a piece is never finished, it can only be abandoned. I've heard that said by (laughs) some famous
1: poet. (laughs) Yes. Well, I definitely feel that (laughs) my pieces are almost never completely right. They are abandoned and they are, or maybe abandoned is the right word. I say to myself, it is what it is. And this is, if I move it any further, I'm going to break it. I, I did read, um, Ursula Le Guin had a comment in one of her many books on writing, um, or maybe it was in an interview, but about, you know, if you revise too much, you, of course, obviously some revision is helpful, but if you revise too much, you can lose whatever it was that was the essential nature of the thing. So I do feel with some of the things, particularly the things that... That I'm not even really sure where they came from. I can try and tweak it but if I change it too much then it loses whatever it was meant to be.
0: Yeah so I mean we were talking about how the book as a whole like you kind of did more additions and subtractions but when you're working on an individual poem do you find yourself do the pieces look very
1: different from when they started? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Sometimes they come out very close to the end product And sometimes um, a lot of rearranging happens as the poem is being written. And sometimes between a poem being written and it being published, I will return to it and do a major revision um, that happened, you know, like a month or two months or even longer. um, When I'm writing poetry in general and I'm sending it out, if a poem is rejected, which, alas, happens quite a lot, <laughs> and it comes back. Um, I look at it again, and sometimes I realise I'd like to change something, and sometimes it's just a word, but sometimes it's a significant change. Like, I don't like the ending, or I wish it were shorter, or I wish it were longer. And so sometimes poems do get major revisions after I've written them, but normally normally once they're published, I let it go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. Speaking of uh, some of these individual poems, would you like to
1: read one of the poems from the book? I would certainly be happy to. <laughs> it's it was it's very difficult because there are so many different types of poems. Anyhow, I tried to pick one that sort of works by itself, and you or anyone will be able to tell. I didn't pick one of the rhymed poems. It is it's on this edge between poetry and what what everyone would consider poetry and what only people of a wide-ranging definition of poetry would consider poetry. And it takes place um, early on in the story. The main character, King Zhao, is 17 years old. He recently became the king, and he recently fought and won his first war. So here we go. Stables. In the stables, King Zhao found himself again, Or found the man he might have been, if he had never been crowned, never gone to war, never led other men to their deaths. Half an hour at a time, squeezed between meetings and training exercises, the stables secured by his guards. Only Kayat, once his stable boy, inside to watch him groom Mitya or Pika or Narsen or Roma, to sit beside him on the feed sacks, breathing leather, manure, dust. The scent of the horses. Zhao's words already spent on rice farmers, ministers, ambassadors, advisers, on irrigation, taxation, alliances, strategy, so that sometimes he had no more than a handful of words for the boy. Kayat, younger even than Zhao, turned fifteen that autumn, but sometimes they spoke at length about the horses, both Zhao's own mounts and the others in the stable, about the condition of the pastures. chafing of a girth or horse off its feed, while Kayat rubbed oil into the saddles, asking nothing of Zhao then or later. Zhao listened more than he spoke, received more than he gave, though he asked nothing of boy or horses beyond their company, but boy and horses alike, offering him, unasked and without restriction, their hearts the poem is over. (laughs) (laughs) I did wonder, you know, if I should pick a poem that's more obviously (laughs) poem-y, but I persuaded myself it would be a a cruel deception, since only a few of them are obviously poem-y, rhyming poems, (laughs) and I would just mislead people.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting listening to this poem, because I was thinking... Listening to you hear it aloud, like it's free verse, so like Mm -hmm. it doesn't have that very obvious distinction of poetry, of like rhyming or metered poetry. But what it has is a very visual language and a sense of there is kind of a rhythm to it that it's own that kind of matches this quieting down of this king trying
1: to find some peace after having gone to war. Thank you. I, I mean, yes, I, I mean, some of the poems I think do have a rhythm. They don't normally have a meter. There are only a few of them that have um, a meter or a rhyme. Yeah. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I was, that was definitely one of the things that I enjoyed about it. It's very accessible from the point of view because it's that line between narrative and poetry is just so interesting to me, especially in these kind of epic novel and poems kind of works. Mm. And I enjoyed that in this work that there, it, it still felt like poetry to me, even though it was very narrative
1: focused. Thank you. Yeah. Um. I, I, I have I've read several of the, in English translation, I hasten to add several of the Chinese classics over the last few years. And um, these are books from hundreds of years ago that were considered held up at the, um, for hundreds of years as being, you know, the premier works of Chinese literature. And what was interesting to me was that they all contain poetry, often extensive amounts of poetry, and the translators have sometimes omitted poems and sometimes tried to translate them as poetry and sometimes translated them but not poetically. And But it was interesting just that the books themselves were a mixture of, you know, regular prose, and then they would have, a long poem or a short poem and more prose and songs it was, it was strange that's fascinating uh, especially when
0: you bring in like the translation element mm. of it you mm. know and how that changes things do you was uh, speaking of like these chinese ep- epics did you find yourself turning them turning to them during the writing of or have you been reading them a long time and the, it's just well, no, actually,
1: I I think most of them I read afterwards. So the the one, I mean, a book that did have some influence on me and that is Asian and is translated and is a real classic, but it's not Chinese, is the Tale of Genji by Murasaki Shikibu. I don't know how to pronounce that name correctly. Um, but I read that as a child, not an especially young child. You know, I was over ten, maybe over maybe over 13 um, but I uh, that that contained some short bits of poetry and as a child the short bits of poetry were my favorite bit in the book in translation I, you know I I still loved them but the Chinese classics I came to later interesting so
0: now that uh, the sign of the dragon is published out the world out in the world and it's won an award. <laughs> Do you um do you have um any thoughts of returning to this world, or does this kind of feel complete as is? I
1: feel like I probably will not continue the story. I feel like if I were going to re-enter the world and write more I mean I could imagine, and I have occasionally toyed with writing one or two extra poems that aren't in the book, um and you know, either just submitting them individually or just thinking to myself, ah, well, <laughs> you know, that was another poem that could have been in the book. But but if I was going to write a lengthy chunk, I think I would go ahead and make it a prequel that happened hundreds of years before. I don't think I want... To... Yes, I mean, people have suggested <laughs> that I could write about um, Zhao's son, or, or but I, I don't... I don't think I want to do that. And I'm not sure I would return to it at all. I think it's doubtful. But if I did, I think it's more likely that I would write a prequel and that Dragon would still be in it as a minor but important character shaping some other event.
0: Mm. Yeah, interesting. I, I don't, for some reason, this made me think because. <laughs> So this started out with one poem and then turned into this huge epic thing. Do you find yourself now going like, as you're writing a new poem,
1: you're like, oh no, could this turn into some <laughs> bigger thing? Um, I do find myself wondering whether poems could turn into projects. So, for instance, hmm. the, the you know I wrote um, the the book before this is Elemental Haiku, and it's very very much shorter. It's 119 haiku for the elements of the periodic table. And there again, I wrote the first two haiku on a whim one morning, and then it occurred to me I had done hydrogen and helium and I could just attempt to work my way through the periodic table. So I do have, given that both those books began with me just thinking I was in an idle moment writing a poem or possibly two haiku, um, and then became a much longer project, I do wonder whether things will be longer. And I do have groups of poems So, you know, I, at the moment, I have a short set of poems that are all called What Something Reads, you know, What Aliens Mm. Read or whatever. Um, And I keep adding to it, but I don't think that that will ever be long enough to be a book in itself. Um, I do have a much longer set of astronomy poems, most most of which begin with, um, have the title How to Something, like how to surprise Saturn or how to decorate the moon or how to fathom a light year. And there they have reached um, a bookish length and my agent is submitting them. So I don't know whether anything will come of it, but I have published individual poems from it. Although now I've stopped submitting them while she tries to sell the collection. Yeah. But, but yes, I, as far as a longer narrative one, I, The closest I've come is to think about the kinds of things I might like to write about, Um, but it's very different, and I think it's actually quite hard for me to do it by thinking, oh, I would like to write a poem in which the main characters are older women who did something exciting in their youth, but this is later in their lives, and probably they'll get dragged into something, but they had stopped, you know, being warriors or whatever they were <laughs> and I I don't know. It's more something I would like to write than that something that I have any specific anchor into. So I think it's more likely that I would actually something random would happen and I'd end up writing a book about whales you know swimming in the ocean without ever having thought that i was going to write a book about whales it would just happen that i got particularly invested in one whale and then i wanted to know more about it there won't be a whale book but i mean it'll be i think it's more likely to be a random project than one that i um try to calculate in advance got you got you well I hope uh your astronomy
0: astronomy book finds a home and um if you if you ever get inspired to write the the older woman book that sounds amazing too. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um so to wrap things up I would love to know if there is something you're reading or some form of media that you're loving or finding inspiring right now.
1: There Okay. <laughs> there. Okay. Um Let's see. So the last book that I read that I would feel I could say to anyone, oh, this is a book I loved and it's great, um, is The Empress of Salt and Fortune. I'm going to say her name is Nigevo. I don't know how to pronounce her name. The last name is V-O. And it's a novella. And I I thought it was brilliant. Um, But uh in terms of what i read for fun um (laughs) i tend at at the moment something about the world at the moment means that i'm trying to escape into something that will last a long time so i've been looking (laughs) for series that i can disappear into and normally i want them to have a main character or ideally several main characters who i'm going to like um and be able to root for and um so there were there have been a bunch of them that I've fallen for during the pandemic. The, <laughs> CJ Cherry has some books from the past. I reread the channel books, I um which are science fiction, and then I discovered that she had a um another science fiction series called Foreigner, which I loved. And I um I loved Ben Aaronovitch's Aronovich's Rivers of London, which is urban fantasy. I love um, and during the pandemic read the most recent book in Megan Whalen Turner's um, series The Thief which appears to be marketed for young adults though it contains some very dark material in it so I'm not sure I mean it (laughs) I read dark material when I was a young adult but but I'm not sure every parent would be comfortable with their child reading it Um, right now the one that I'm going through is um, a series by Stephen Brust which she began in the 1980s though I think the most recent book which I haven't yet reached is from 2017 and it's about a character called Vlad Taltos who's an assassin uh, I mean I'm just I just find a thing and I want to be able to read it and read it and read it and it takes a while till I get to the end That that's that's mm, that's something specific to the last couple of years that I that I find myself wishing to do that. Awesome. It sounds like uh,
0: some fun, epic journeys to take in the <laughs> reading world. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, so um, is there somewhere
1: that uh, people can find you online? Yes, I have a very imaginative website, which is called marysoonlee.com. And my very imaginative Twitter handle is at Mary Soon Lee, um, and that's <laughs> that's I you don't know that's it. I don't do Facebook. Those are my oh I I do review books on Goodreads. So as I make my way through <laughs> series after series or standalone books, I um I write my comments online, and uh, yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for
0: uh, joining this conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.